turned about 30 degrees while I was praying. I don't know how that happened. I started that way, and I finished morning over here. Prayed a little longer, I made a full circle. All right, Hebrews. So we are in what I think is one of the fun sections of Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews has had a lot of very interesting sections, but it's getting into, it's probably the most famous chapter in Hebrews. is Hebrews 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, the Hall of Faith chapter, a lot of Old Testament examples of characters exhibiting faith, and we're going to do something bold. We're going to finish where we didn't finish last week, which is the last paragraph, really two paragraphs of uh, chapter 10, and then we're going to continue through all of chapter 11 and get the introductory verses in chapter 12. So I say that mostly knowing we probably won't actually do that. But we're going to try to do that tonight. So to make sense of this text, and Hebrews, okay, so there's this common problem in Christian thinking and Christian culture is we grow up and we become very familiar, especially if you've grown up in church, grown up in a Christian subculture, you become very familiar with themes, very familiar with ideas in a way that can actually make you misunderstand them. You think you know because you've you've heard it a million times and you quit questioning what that means and then you just start adopting what you think it means and you end up very far from what the Bible might have originally been saying. Hebrews 11 is one of those examples, especially the first verse, and it's going to give us that um, faith is the evidence of things unseen, the convictions of things. Oh, I said that in reverse, but you know what I'm talking about. So we think of faith in a very inaccurate way. Um, if we look at that verse and don't interpret it in its context. So what I'm going to do first, before we fill in any blanks, is we're just going to do a quick recap. So if you remember, last week at the middle of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews finished his point. His point technically is over. Now he's making application. This is the point in the sermon where the preacher's been explaining the text, and now he's telling you what to do with it. So the truth has been laid down. Now he's just walking you through. This is how it applies in your daily life. And he's going to give an Old Testament example of how this applies, which is chapter 11. But to really make sense of that, we need to (coughs) rethink the argument. So we're not going to go through all the details. But let's just recap the basic idea and then the metaphor of reaching the promised land. That's the most important piece. If we can make sense of that, then Hebrews 11 is going to take on a slightly different meaning than maybe, and maybe you've read it the right way, but if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this um, from an incorrect perspective. So let's just, the book of Hebrews is about one person, Jesus. But who's it talk about all the time other than Jesus? Moses. Moses is like everywhere. Almost in every chapter, you read something about Moses. Well, Moses is a very important biblical character. And when we get to chapter 3, the beginning of the Moses argument starts. So he starts off just Jesus is God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, but then he becomes a little lower than the angels. And that's a reference to him doing what? Incarnation. Quick side note, because this will matter when we get into chapter 11. We told you at the very beginning that Hebrews was written in well, first language. <coughs> Not Aramaic. Or he, Greek, yes. It's always funny to me that we, it's the name of the book is Hebrews when it's written in Greek. What was unique about the Greek of the book of Hebrews? Do you remember? 
Higher class, it's perfect. Um, it's, it's like a scholar with a PhD wrote this book for his PhD class. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's perfect Greek. Now, perfect Greek means that, like, you could write an email, and it could technically have correct grammar, but you could write a paper, and that email's grammar wouldn't cut it. It's not that the email's grammar's wrong. What's the difference between the two? Style, right? It's, it's all about style. So when we say Hebrews has good Greek, great Greek, we mean style. It's got a particular type of style that makes it unique, makes it, in the Greek world, you would read this, if you were a Greek scholar in the Greek world and you read Hebrews, you'd say, wow, this guy's a good writer. He, he uses proper, correct Greek, which means he never says anything exactly the way we would say it. It's always implicit as opposed to explicit. So he doesn't usually say, Jesus went into the high, I mean, the Holy of Holies and the greater tabernacle and made the sacrifice. He's going to say, the one who came after went into the place not made by hands and obtained the thing that the Levitical priest couldn't do. It's like, okay, that was a really roundabout way of saying just the simple, Jesus made an internal sacrifice in the Holy of Holies himself. Or you could take all of Hebrews and condense it in English to like five sentences, and you wouldn't be leaving much out. It's just the nature of the way that the language works. So when we get to this Jesus section, um, I say the Jesus section, the Moses section, that starts in chapter 3, the comparison becomes between Jesus Jesus versus Moses. And then, when he starts that comparison, he spends like the next several chapters talking about Moses. But he's talking about Moses in a semi-negative light, but what's his attitude towards Moses? He ain't no Jesus, but he's awesome. But he ain't no Jesus. Alright, so, the Old Testament Moses is a great character, but he uses this illustration, and we'll just draw the map to kind of help visually give it. That is not at all what that looks like, but uh, just just pretend with me for a moment. Is this anything to you? Oh, yeah. It's a map. This is water. All right, what water is this? Mediterranean Sea. What river? Uh, Nile. Nile. What is this? Red Sea. Yeah, okay, it goes. It's big. It kind of has a finger. It doesn't look anything like that. Dead Sea, um, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. So what nation's here? Israel. Israel. In this case, we're going to call it the Promised Land. Promised is a key word for the book of Hebrews. Promised Land. And what's here? What country? Egypt. Egypt. All right, so here's the illustration that the book of Hebrews is always going back to. Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant. This is how chapter 3 begins. And as that servant... Did he get God's people out of Egypt? Yes. Yes. He got them to Sinai, yeah. out of slavery. What did they receive at Sinai? The law. The law. They received the Ten Commandments, really the whole thing. And then, how many of those people does Moses take to the Promised Land? None. None. Zero. Now, technically, two people made it, but Moses didn't take them. Where's Moses? When they crossed the, the Jordan's stormy banks. In the ground. He's dead. He is gone. Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant. He just couldn't get people to the promised land. 
Well, what's that ultimately going to be an illustration for in the book of Hebrews? Is that the Mosaic covenant can't get you to the promised land. That was the, the imagery he uses. So consequently then, and this is where we climax in chapter 10, Jesus is this greater high priest, because we go through all the things the Old Testament had, have the Levitical priesthood, Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood, because he's what kind of priest? A Melchizedekian priest, right? He's part of that higher priesthood, and he's not offering these um, blood sacrifices from goats and lambs, he's offering what? Himself, and what is he? Perfect, spotless God-man offering himself, and he's not like the high priests of the Old Testament who had to do this all the time, make sacrifices for themselves, and then, kind of with this haphazard fear, oh no, I'm going to die if I go in here, offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. How's Jesus do it? One time for all, an absolute boldness achieves eternal redemption. So all of these comparisons. Point being, if you believe in Jesus, you go from Egypt to where? Promised land. He gets you home. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Remember their context. It's Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, who are being persecuted by Jews to leave Jesus and go back to Moses. So basically, what's the author of Hebrews say? Why would you do that? Moses can only get you to the law. Jesus can get you to the promised land. So that's how the argument climax in chapter 10. And then we started in verse, actually at the, tonight it says we started in 19. Now, that, we don't, we read that already, but that was the beginning of his conclusion. So let's just reread that. So remember where we are. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Confidence to enter the holy places. Which specific holy place is he talking about? Holy of Holies. Since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. I mean, if we had the Holy of Holies sitting right here and the Ark of the Covenant was behind the curtain and you walked up to it, what's going through your mind right now? Don't touch it. You're thinking of Usa in the Old Testament. You're thinking of the high priest who had a rope tied around him so they could drag his dead body out if he sinned while he was in there. And this statement just said, well, since we can go in there with absolute confidence... Why? Why could we go in there with absolute confidence? What's the biblical, what's the New Testament teaching that says that is so? Jesus tore the curtain. The curtain. The curtain was torn. When? At what event? When Jesus died, when he made the sacrifice. Curtain, I almost said it again. The curtain was torn top to bottom. So since we can go in, absolute boldness through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So Jesus opened a way into the Holy of Holies, that is, his sacrifice, his flesh. That's how we get in. So if you go into the Holy of Holies another way, what happens? You die. <laughs> you die. So nothing's, you're not just intrinsically a good person now, and you get to go in. No, Jesus is the means. He's the mediator. You go in through him, you can go in. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because so we can go in and we have the great priest, verse 22, let us draw near. Well, literally draw near to what? To God in the Holy of Holies. Let, let's draw near. Let, let's go in to that place. Why? Because our hearts are in full assurance of faith with our hearts 
sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our, our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that's how far we made it last week. We were trying to get through all of chapter 10. We made it to the day drawing near. Now the day drawing near is a reference to what? Second coming. We could call Old Testament, this day of the Lord is a common theme. And the idea is that's the day Jesus, or in the Old Testament, that's the day Yahweh shows up. And what's the specific thing Yahweh's almost always going to do on the day of the Lord in the Old Testament? You know? Conquer. This is the day he shows up and he kills the bad guys. This is the Old Testament idea. And that's exactly how it's being used at this moment. So let's, uh, for a moment, let's leave our promised land metaphor, at least from a map perspective. Let's turn it into a timeline. Now, we're not going to get into eschatology timeline, but big picture <clears throat> timeline. So here's Jesus. Let's do the cross and an up. And then this is the day of the Lord. We're going to condense all eschatology into that line just for the sake of tonight. So tribulation millennial reign, whatever. It's, it's all in the line. And uh, we can work that out on another occasion. Preferably when James is here. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we disagree about it. Or no, no, no. Okay, yeah. Alright, but what's on the other side of the line? What do we call that? Eternity. Eternity. Or what's another biblical term for this? Resurrection. Resurrection. Oh, yes. Resurrection. the resurrection. There's the resurrection of Jesus, and then there's the resurrection. Those are different things. Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection, but in that, that comes later. Okay, so with that in mind, he's saying, because of what Jesus did through his death and resurrection, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, let us consider our stir up one another, because the day of the Lord is coming. Well, what kind of connotation does he have with that? We, we better stir up one another loving good deeds. Because that day's coming. What's that sound like? You need to have good work. Okay, it, it kind of sounds like a warning. See what I'm saying? Like, guys, that day's coming. Well, think about it. Who, who's he talking to, literally? To these... Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Moses, well, do you want to be back at Moses when that day comes? No. no. What goes wrong if you're, you're with Moses instead of Jesus on the day of the Lord? You don't get to go in. You don't want to be on the wrong team when Jesus shows up. All right, that's the kind of the warning. And then if we're not clear on that, let's just keep reading in the text. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning, Deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All right, so if we misread this text, we have a huge problem. Have you ever sinned deliberately? 
Well, if you misread this text, there's no hope for you. Right? That's not what this is about. What was the whole point of the previous ten chapters? What kind of sacrifice did Jesus do? A once for all, fixed all sin, backwards and forwards, once for all sacrifice. So to go on deliberately sinning, in this case, is literally a reference to what? For the apostasy. Exactly. So they're like, "Mm, maybe maybe we need to just go back to Moses. And he says, all right, after everything I just told you, you choose Moses, there's no hope for you. Do you hear the gravity of what he's saying? If you really, you clearly, with your spiritual eyes, see this is what Jesus is. You got this before you, or you can go back to Moses. And you say, mm-hmm. I'm kind of nervous about what's going on. I'm, I'm going to go with Moses instead of Jesus. There no longer remains a sacrifice for you. Well, think about what he's saying. How many times has Jesus come down the cross and sacrifice? Well, Just the once. If that time doesn't work for you, what's plan B? There's no plan. Hell. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That, that's what he's saying here. So there's no longer sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, when is that? That's the day of the Lord. We're condensing it into the line, but all of that would go into that line. Fearful expectation of judgment. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in the Old Testament, you're a good Jew, and then you set aside the law, you commit apostasy in that system. What was the punishment for apostasy? Death. All right, so, but that's Moses. How much greater is Jesus than Moses? Well, you think about it. When you offend someone, the gravity of that offense is actually tied not to the action, but to the value of the person you offended. Right? I mean, just in reality, if you punch your neighbor in the face, what happens? You get to bloody nose. <laughs> it just depends, right? A lot of different things. If you punch a police officer in the face, you better run. You're going to jail. Going to jail. <laughs> you might get shot. I don't know. I mean, a lot of options. You try to punch President Trump in the face, you will get shot. They're not even going to ask questions first. Uh-uh. You just get shot first. See what I'm saying? Like, the, who the person is, is everything. So, you could set aside the law of Moses, or the penalty's death. I was like, well, isn't that the worst penalty there could be? Not even close. No. So what do you think he's going to do with this argument? You already know where he's going. So if that's what happens under Moses, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Wow. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, there's no whitewashing that. There's no beating around the bush here. That's what it says. It is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we like to make the Christian God in the West all goodness and love, and we define that as he's nice to people. Well, God is all goodness and love, but the definition is not that he's nice to people. He's not. What's his attitude towards people consistently in both the Old and New Testament? Just. Just. He he kills people all the time. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? New Testament age, right? (laughs) Well, they were slain by by the Spirit, Spirit, for sure. (laughs) Slain by the Spirit. Um, All right, so let's fill in some blanks. They were not resurrected. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. All right, fearful expectation of judgment. So this is technically we're finishing up last week. These first two were the back page from last week. So the judgment for denying Christ will be far greater than that of disobeying Moses. Follow the logic there. That's exactly what he's trying to say. Next, judgment is more certain because of the death of Christ, not less. You see that? Again, he's raising the expectation of judgment because of the cross, not lowering it. The expectation of judgment is greater. And number three, God is terrified. Does it literally say that? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is terrified. You remember God showed up to the people of Israel in the Old Testament when Moses was in charge. They came down on the mountain in their sight. They literally saw God descend in this manifestation of his presence. And he speaks to them audibly, not to Moses, but to the people, the Ten Commandments. Do you remember their response? This is in Exodus scares him to death. They tell Moses, please don't ever let that happen again. God scared them to death. They would much rather send Moses up the mountain than have to be in the presence of their God. Now what caused them to feel that way? Sin. But how did our chapter start in verse 19? We go boldly. So God's only terrifying if you're not washed washed, it's different. So because of that, let's finish out the... Well, we'll see how far we get. Alright, verse 32. But recall the former days. So remember, he's talking to these people who are Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to Moses. So remember your former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So who's persecuting these Jewish Christians? Jews. Jews were persecuting Jewish Christians, and he's pointing back and saying, don't, don't forget, when you, you became a Christian, this whole persecution thing you're experiencing now, that's not new. You, were, you did that on day one. Your, your fellow Jews did not want you to go to Christ. You came to Christ. Some of you were persecuted, or you were partners with the ones who were persecuted. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Wow, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I've never been robbed, but a friend of mine has. He came home to his house one day and broken in door, stuff gone, house in turmoil. And when he was just describing the emotion of that to me, it was like, like I just felt the pain, you know, in my gut. Just like that he had been, you know, violated, 
is, is the way. Has anybody had, had an experience like that? I, um, so, what's, I mean, is that the what it feels like just to come home and your stuff has been taken out of the he, he just had a strong emotional reaction do i your security is gone oh yeah yeah i imagine so so but what they do to the plundering of their property praise the lord they praise the lord they accepted joyfully the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one now what's that a reference to Eternity, ultimately the resurrection. Exactly. They weren't worried about losing their stuff now for Christ. They knew what they were going to get. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, according to the Old Testament. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So let's fill in these blanks, and then we got to keep moving. All right, so three things that give us assurance that we are in the faith. So he's saying we're the ones who don't shrink back. Instead, we're the ones who have faith. So what's he pointing to that shows that? Number one, our suffering. What's, he, what's the first thing he points to to give them assurance? Don't you remember when you, former days, how you suffered? The hardship, persecution? That was, to the writer of Hebrews, proof. Gave them reason to have assurance that they're legitimately children of God, that they're of those who have faith. Now, the faith chapter is going to prove that. Next, our partnership with other believers. So he, they were partners with the ones who were persecuted if they weren't the ones persecuted. They were sharing with those who were. And then, number three, the hope in the resurrection. Those three things are what led him to believe that these people have actual faith. And if, there's an interesting cycle here in the last fill-in-the-blank line in that section. Assurance leads to confidence, which contributes to perseverance. See that? Assurance leads to confidence, which contributes to perseverance. There's actually a connection between assurance of salvation and actually having faith. We're going to see that connection in the next next chapter. All right, so he's saying, the the Lord is coming. We better make sure we persevere. Because when we get here, that day of judgment, you can say we have two options. We can experience the joy and glory of resurrection, or we can experience the fury of judgment. Now, what does he say is the determining distinction between which one you get? The people who go here in the very last verse, the people who go down are the ones who shrink back. And the ones who go up are the ones who had what? Faith. Faith. <laughs> so shrinking back is the opposite of faith. In this context, shrinking back is what? It's apostasy. It's turning from Jesus. So you turn from Jesus, theory and judgment. 
You persevere in faith, resurrection. So now what he's going to do is give us Old Testament proof of this. So you're standing here. He's going to give us biblical characters standing here who make it here. That's what's going to happen. It's going to get more and more clear the more and more Old Testament figures he goes through. You ready for this? It's going to be like rapid fire. So it starts off. We're going to have to define faith. Did I fill in the better possession section? We're going to do that really fast because I want to get to the basics of faith. All right, the terrifying dread of the end of life is judgment and fury from God. That's option one. Or the overwhelming, all-consuming hope of the Christian life is the resurrection. And here's what we're fixing to see him prove. The Old Testament taught salvation by faith. Faith. So this is, we spent a lot of time on this last week. Is that they, they knew, now that some of them misunderstood, certainly. But if you sat down with a Jewish rabbi in the Old Testament, they would have answered faith, not works. Remember that conversation? We, we spent a lot of time there. So we don't have time to rehash. We're fixed to prove it in, in chapter 11 anyway. So um, mediated through the law. How do you do your faith? Will you obey the law God gave? So it's salvation by faith, not by works, mediated through the law. All those who have faith in God trust that they will receive the reward, keyword, of his pleasure, that is God's pleasure, at the resurrection. Okay. Now, let's dive into chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, what's the specific thing hoped for in this context? The resurrection. The resurrection at the end. So he's saying faith now this moment is the assurance of eternity. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what's not seen in this scenario? In your faith, what's not seen? The end. Future. Future is the unseen thing. Okay? So I know I grew up, I loved apologetics when I was a youth. Everybody loved to come to this verse, define faith. There's a horrible place if that's what you're doing here. Because faith has to have something that is seen or you can't have faith. Faith is not our belief that God exists. We have to believe God exists (coughs) to have faith. It's a prerequisite. Here, the unseen thing is not God. The unseen thing is the future. The thing hoped for. So we have assurance, we have conviction, and that conviction is going to cause action because we know with confidence God's going to do this at the end. You follow what I'm saying? I think it'll get clear as we go. It's going to use a creation illustration. For by it, people of old received their commendation. So if just that is... It's worded weird because it's Hebrews, and he says everything implicitly. He just said in the Old Testament they live by faith, not by works. That's what that verse says. The people of old, who are they? Is the Old Testament Jews, right? Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints received their commendation. What does that mean? Their, their reward. Their yeah, you're in. They're counted as righteous by what? 
faith. Faith. Always has been. It's been the only currency of salvation. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that, here how he's using this idea, what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. So follow his illustration. When God started with creation, what did he start with? Nothing. Ex nihilo, if you want the fancy term. Our creation, ex nihilo. God started with nothing and made visible things. What he's saying is faith has the same creative power. It reveals things that you cannot see with your eyes. That's what that's the illustration. And he's going to reveal that as we go. So faith makes something visible. Right? So let's see what the thing is that is made visible. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You remember Cain and Abel, right? Are they the first what? First two, well, first murder is what's going to happen here. All right, so actually that's significant. What happens to Abel? He's the one who dies. And what happens to his blood? That's significant. Spills into the ground. All right, being in the ground is a big deal. So hold on to that thought. But Abel gets killed by Cain. But it says Abel offered what to God? A more acceptable sacrifice. He offered a more acceptable sacrifice by faith. So, basically, the example of his faith is a what? A, a work. A particular work he did by faith. This is significant. So, he's offering a better sacrifice. In other words, who has more faith, Cain or Abel? Abel, that's the point. So, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what made Abel righteous? Faith. Justified by faith, even in the Old Testament. And through his faith, he died. Though he died, he still speaks. Now that's we're going to save that he still speaks, because that's going to come up in chapter 12. Um, we're going to reference that again. So just take your questions about how does Abel still speak. Pack those away in your back pocket. We'll pull them out next week, assuming we finish. Um, if not, it'll be two weeks. So, all right. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could did not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So, connected two things there. He pleased God, meaning he possessed what? Faith. Then, verse 6, the, the popular verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So why does he make that statement? That's his argument that Enoch had faith. If he pleased God, then clearly he had faith. All right, so let's get some prerequisites here. So if we want to please God with that kind of faith, here's what we have to do. We have to believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's a very interesting thing. He rewards those who seek him. Right, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip through. I, remember, I, I emphasized a lot at the beginning the implicit language of Hebrews. They'll say this big, long phrase, and all he means is Jesus, you know, kind of thing. Uh, reward him. We mean God keeps his promises. That, that's what that's a reference to. All right. That'll make a lot more sense later. I don't have time to prove it at the moment. But for the moment, just, just walk with me. Okay? So you have to believe God exists 
and that he keeps his promises. Y'all with me? Okay. So that's what verse 6 is saying. By faith, Noah, so example of that, being warned by God concerning events as of yet unseen, so to prove it, the unseen part of faith is what? Future events. Right? Or really the gap in between. Um, so the unseen part. So he was warned about the unseen part. <laughs> part. Wow. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his house. I'm sorry, I'm stuck on that. <laughs> Who heard that? Was that just me? No. Yeah, like the whole front row heard what I said. <laughs> okay, good. No. Probably on the recording then. <laughs> okay, I'm going to reread that part. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as of yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So he got righteous. How did Noah get righteous? By faith. And by faith, what's the specific thing he did? He built an ark. Now, did he see the flood coming? No. What did he see? He saw God. He trusted that God would fulfill his promises. God says, build an ark, Noah, because the flood's coming. And since he trusted God to fulfill his promise, what did Noah do? He obeyed. This is why obedience and faith are so intertwined. Is because if he said, oh, well, I don't know if I want to build an ark, would we say he had faith in God? And we could argue maybe he had faith in God, but it's a useless faith. The book of James talks about that kind of faith. What's that faith? That faith is dead. If if he's not willing to build the ark, then he doesn't have faith. But for our purposes, Noah did build the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Was there an unseen element? Yeah, the future part. What was not unseen, though? God. He had God's presence in his life. He had God's promise in his life. God said, go. Abraham had faith. So what did Abraham do? He went. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise. As a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now, this is the first time he weaves in his big argument. If you go back and read the Genesis narrative, that verse makes no sense. At no point do we read where Abraham's just waiting to get to go to the big city. So God's going to give me this big city. But what's the big city the author of Hebrews is talking about? Jerusalem, the eternal city. That will descend and be here. So he's made this leap, theologically speaking, Abraham trusted God with all of this because Abraham was waiting on the big city. Well, in Abraham's actual life, we wouldn't say big city. What was Abraham waiting on? Well, a son. Did he get that son? Yes. Did he get any other promises from God? He got the land, right? He got, he got all of this stuff going. Everything God said started happening. All right? And then verse 11, by faith, Sarah. and Okay, you should underline, put a square around verse 11. You want to understand how faith works in the correct biblical way. This might be the single best verse in all of Scripture. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. 
right, prosperity gospel teachers love the first half of that verse. It's the second half of the verse that makes everything significant. So, why did Sarah receive power to conceive? Who promised what? That she would have the son. This is not walking out in the streets, name my blessing, claim my blessing, have faith that it'll happen. This is God showing up. God named the blessing. And all Sarah had to do was believe that God was faithful to keep his promise. See that? By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's God's faithfulness right there. We trust that God does what he says. So it means to have faith. Not name it, claim it. It's God names it. We claim those things. And the big global picture is what has God named? Resurrection. How much faith can we put in the resurrection? Absolute. Total. So, this is where he's going with all this. If we know that's coming, our faith is assurance that that's coming, what does that mean we do in the meantime? No matter what happens, we persevere and keep walking. Perseverance in that sense then is faith. Follow what I'm saying? Like, the unseen thing is all this stuff in between. But we know a God who has promised how it ends. We're going to get there. All right. He, he explains this even more, though. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, was born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, as many as the, and, um, innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. So that's Abraham. Verse 13. That all these died in faith, not having received the things promised. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did Noah actually get saved because he built a ark and got on it because God promised the flood was coming. I had faith, but I mean, what I'm saying is, did the thing God said was going to happen, happen? Mm -hmm. Well, it seems, yeah, literally, Abraham was promised a son, literally had a son, Sarah, same promise, but then verse 13 says, none of these people received the things promised. (laughs) Well, what thing now are we talking about? The author of Hebrews is weaving in and out of the narrative. He's going Old Testament, he's going big picture. Old Testament, big picture. Where did we go in verse 13? Big picture. None of them received what was promised. What was promised? The resurrection. How many of them are at the resurrection right now? Zero. Zero. Not a soul. Except one. One soul has been raised. Jesus. Nobody else. That's coming. Do it. He's the first fruits, exactly. All right, so that's coming. So they all died not having done that. They saw them, though, and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So the way they proved that they had faith in the resurrection was by not calling this home. That was their example of faith. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, what are we talking about? It's a resurrection. This is the new Jerusalem. This is eternity. This is what's been prepared. Can we give more examples of this? We'll see how many we can do in five minutes. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac 
And he, um, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What just happened? Was it saying Abraham believed? Think about it. God promised Abraham, you're going to have this son. You remember the whole narrative there. I mean, his faith in that at first is pathetic. But then God literally promised, the promise literally comes true. He gets the son. Fast forward a few years, God says, go sacrifice him. And what was Abraham's response for this act of faith? Going. All right, let's go do it. He's saying because he had so much faith in God's promise that he knew he was coming back with Isaac no matter what happened on that mountain. Why? Because what had God promised? Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So the God who promised Isaac was going to keep Isaac alive. Either wasn't going to have to sacrifice him, which is what did happen, or he was going to sacrifice him, and God was going to raise him from the dead. He was still coming back down the mountain with Isaac either way. Now, I remember a, a preacher made a big deal when I was a kid about this text. He was preaching in Genesis. He tells the, the servants... You know, he makes them stay to the side, and then only him and Isaac are going up on the mountain. Abraham does say in the Old Testament, we will be back. You know, it's like Abraham knew. He knew he could trust God with the promise. He didn't know how it was going to work out, but he knew he could trust that God would do what God said he would do. So, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of Israel, of the Israelites, and gave directions concerning his bones. And by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with his people, um, the people of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was he looking forward to? Resurrection. And ultimately, we know it's resurrection. What, how clear that picture was for him, I'm not sure. But we know he was able to endure. He willfully chose to suffer as a Hebrew rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Egypt because he wanted the reward. So what is faith about? Obeying in circumstances, regardless of what they are, because you know what's on the other side of them. And for us, that's consistent across all of Christianity. We know this without a doubt. No matter where we're standing on this, we know what's coming. And God says, just obey me here. Just just follow Jesus here. I've told you what's happening here. Have faith in me. This is what biblical faith is about. It's obedience in light of what's coming. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I think we can finish the chapter. Let's do it. All right, by faith, let's see. By faith, 
faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Was there some magical power about the circling, or did the walls fall down because God said, hey, go do that, and I'm going to save you? God was just faithful to a promise. At no point in the Old Testament are they naming and claiming. They're always just obeying the thing God named. we got to do the things God names. That's just another example. All right, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Um, Women received back their dead by resurrection. End of the good ones. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Is there any doubt that Hebrews is talking about the resurrection? No question whatsoever. This is the city. This is the promise. He's saying faith. They did all of these things. They followed all of these difficult paths, all of these scary opportunities, all of these things because they had faith in the God who promised the resurrection. We can do this because we know what happens on the other side. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. After all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. What's the thing that's promised? Resurrection. Resurrection. they got to wait for us. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We're going to do all this together. Now let's just read the first two verses in chapter 12. We'll wrap it up. Therefore, this, this is bringing it all together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses here? There's all these saints that have gone before us. All right, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, so he's our example, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how did Jesus do it? Endured the shame by looking at the glory on the other side. His faith. We can endure this peace, whatever comes, because we look at the joy on the other side. This is why in the Christian worldview, resurrection is everything. We can't go a day without this. It's a big deal in our worldview. So, not that many blanks to fill in. I want to fill them in and I want to close. Let's do it. We'll just be a couple minutes late. I was a couple minutes early last week, remember? So we're just we're, we're checking in, on, uh, cashing that in. Faith is trusting God to fulfill his promises no matter what circumstances are before you. And obeying his commands. God says, I'm going to do this at the end. Here's how I want you to live now. Faith is saying, okay, let's do that. God has promised to redeem us in the end. 
This is the big picture story of Christianity. We have faith when we make decisions to follow Christ, and I mean in, in daily life, because we know it works out in the end. Not pragmatically today, but we know it works out in the end. We do not have faith if we refuse to follow Christ when things get hard. Our action, and by that I mean obedience, is the evidence of things unseen, the assurance of things hoped for. And Jesus, our example, Jesus endured the shame of crucifixion with his eyes set on the joy afterwards. And then for us, we endure the suffering of this life with our eyes set on the joy of the resurrection. Very good. All right. You get them or I need to redo any of those? All right. Okay. We survived. We made it. 734. We were four minutes early last week, four minutes late this week. I'm going to say we're top of a perfect score then. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray you bless the study of your word. Let it prove fruitful in our lives. Pray that we would endure the shame, that we would set on our um, horizon the glory of the resurrection, the time we will spend with Christ in eternity, that we will be in your throne room. Heaven will be here among us, and you will be our God. Father, let this be before us so that we can endure the shame. We can endure whatever comes, and in faith we can obey. And we can lay aside sin that tangles us up so that we can run this race with perseverance. Give us this vision of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right.